Nikaya, Wanju, Nidja, Zen Group of WA Zendo Ach, Nalak, Kadich, Nidja, Wanjak, Pudjak, Nalak, Katajini, Nalak, Kadich, Wajakwa, Nunga, Pridia, Kurara, Wiri, Ye, Ye. Hello and welcome here to the Zen Group of WA Zendo. We acknowledge that this is Wadjuk heartland we are learning on and practicing on. We acknowledge the Wanjuk and Noongar elders of the past and present. Thank you to Ross for inviting me to talk on this topic. It is vast and I will only be pulling out a few threads tonight. Art and Zen spirituality. What is art? Is there a purpose to art? Can there be a spiritual dimension to art? Is there a Zen sensibility that informs art? And if so, which art? Different forms of art have been practiced since the beginning of human history. There are cave paintings dated back 64 to 70,000 years. The oldest is of geometric abstract science the more recent of animals and handprints. There are also several prehistoric sculptures from different sites that have been dated around 700,000 BCE, almost four times older than the oldest cave art. Looking at human genealogy, such objects predate both Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. Making and keeping art around seems hardwired into our DNA. There are probably lots of reasons for art, making art. We cannot know for certain why people in our ancient DNA lineages made art, but it has been conjectured that some art was used for sympathetic magic, e.g. to make sure that animals came back on their annual migrations. Some art was probably related to fertility, e.g. to make sure that women got pregnant and had healthy offspring. Some art was used to commemorate remarkable events, some to mark tribal territories, some to tell the rank and importance of a village leader, and of course, overlapping with these, such art was likely used to tell origin and clan history stories, as a conscious semiotic mark bridging being another, and perhaps to ask and leave for the next person and generation that deep question, what happens to us? Is wanting the world to provide good sustenance or prosperous offspring a spiritual pursuit? Is depicting a mysterious event more so? Certainly signalling land ownership boundaries or your social status is not in that dimension. Even so, perhaps our ancient ancestors in their art were recreating or signposting the oneness they felt with the spiralling universe. I like to imagine that they would have deeply understood Robert Aiken's sense of interbeing when he wrote, When the self is forgotten, it is recreated again and again, even more ritually by the myriad things and beings of the universe. The wild deer wandering here and there keeps the human soul from care. This is not just a matter of sensing the oneness of the universe. Stars of a tropical sky spread across the ceiling of my mind and the cool wind unlocks my ear. However, systematic art based on religious underpinnings requires an organised religion with beliefs, rituals and symbols. 
It requires an aesthetic sensibility, an artistic language others understand, and mediums to craft. When did the earliest Buddhist art appear? The dates of Guatemala Buddha's birth and death are uncertain. There has been recent debate, however, most historians in the early 20th century dated his lifetime to around 563 BCE to 483 BCE. Nonetheless, there is no Buddhist art from the earliest period of Buddhism. The earliest works of Buddhist art are temples and frescoes in India that date to the first century BCE. In the earliest Buddhist art, the Buddha was not represented in human form. His presence was integrated instead by a sign, such as a pair of footprints, an empty seat, an empty space beneath a parasol, or a dharma wheel. Statues depicting the enlightened one were not made until the first century CE. During the second to fourth century CE, Buddhist paintings that portrayed Buddhist narratives, doctrines, and the Buddhist teachings in an illustrative way that was easy for the lay person to understand began to also appear. Such art was either a human development phase or it is a period from which such artefacts have managed to survive the ravages of time, as the earliest surviving Christian art also comes from the late 2nd to early 4th centuries. Thus begins the fine art of narrative provocation, the art of mythic and archetypal patterns, of art being used to represent events of origin, human philosophical and spiritual parables and conundrums. Such illustrative art didn't really gain momentum in either religion until the 10th and 11th centuries, but by the 16th and 17th centuries, art of the real, imagined or mythic figures of religion in Western and Asian worlds had become a focus of religious contemplation and pilgrimage. Why? because such art suggests and gives the opportunity for introspection, change and transformation. The human desire for these has not abated. In the modern period, the interested travel to be awed by such art deposited in churches, temples, public spaces, museums or protected sites will still use them in their everyday religious and spiritual practices. Do our cultured minds enjoy the moral theatre of such art? the customised memories of their narratives? Do we go to look and ponder our fate and shared humanity or to escape it? Or do we generalise and say such images speak of spiritual truths? Is a crucified Christ or saint more than just an image of suffering? Is an image of Mother Mary transcendent? Similar questions can be asked about Buddhist art. Please sit comfortably. A great majority are less dramatic than the Christian. However, there are statues of the emaciated Shakyamuni Buddha that is, are as poignant as any crucifixion scene. A great deal more depict figures in meditation with different mudras. Many traditional Zen Buddha statues or painted images are, are one of the three Zen trinity, Manjushri, Canon or Bodhidharma while numerous scrolls and paintings illustrate Zen stories and koans. At first, Zen art typically represented religious figures, but as the time passed, more mythic and secular imagery was explored. Dragons and tigers, monkeys and dogs, bamboo flowers, old branches of budding plum, 
orchards, orchids and rocks became some of the regular, regularly featured motives. These are all as much an, an amalgamation of spirituality, education, culture and creativity as any religious art. Perhaps one of the most prevalent subjects of Zen art is that of the Daruma. The wide-eyed bearded figure called Daruma in a Japanese la is a language, Japanese language abbreviation of the Sanskrit Bodhidharma. And he is the founder of Zen Buddhism. Daruma or Bodhidharma was born in the 6th century in India and is thought to have taken his teachings to China thereafter. And then eventually it was tr transmitted to Japan, other countries in the West. In a great number of depictions, whether realistically detailed or in quickly brushed cursive outline, Bodhidharma is shown in Zazen, the straightforward model and recommendation of the practice that is the foundation of Zen. Known for his steadfastness and determination, Bodhidharma has even become a popular traditional Japanese doll that, with a low centre of gravity, can't be knocked over as he springs straight back up again. Such dolls have their own shrines in some households. As Zazen leads to transformation and the dropping of delusions, then as a subject in scrolls and paintings, Daruma is also depicted in a range of guises in seemingly strange or uncanny situations. These are the traits also of a compassionate bodhisattva. Neil McFarlane's book, Daruma, uh, the founder of Zen in Japanese art and popular culture, shows some of his many transformations. Daruma has been depicted on a reed, on a rock, on a mountain, in a cave, in a boat, in a cloud, dressed as a priest, a fox, a courtesan and transvestite, with a bowl, with a drum, a staff, walking, standing, sleeping, wearing sandals and without one sandal scowling from beneath a hooded cloak or staring with his robe barely wrapped around his shoulders. In such characterizations, Daruma is serious yet playful, stoic and resilient, yet ever-changing to circumstances, an agent of good luck and transformation, not quite redemptive as a figure to pray to, but a fine figure to study or reflect on as a role model in stickability, a model of metamorphosis and simply acceptance of life as a blessing. Implicit is that all daily activities should be performed with a Zen spirit, or rather, they are inseparable from our original nature. The diversity of the rumours characterisations also suggest you can never know, and therefore never judge, the quality or type of transforma transformation people experience. Zen monk and teacher Isan Dorsey, 1933-1990, lived such a life. But the abiding message of Daruma Dharama is Sazen. If you practice or know about Zen, then you also know that the transformation of the Zazen depicted in many Daruma images, or indeed any of his manifestations, is the realisation of oneness or emptiness. Given that this is the core realisation of Zen, there is a genre of Zen art dedicated to indicating this, the art of the Enzo. 
An enzo is a circle that is usually made in one simple stroke. Since the 13th century, many Zen masters have drawn and left enzos. The world's oldest known extant enzo was brushed in the late 13th or early 14th century by Jiaquan Joshu, 1229-1316. John Cage, 1912-1992, the musician and painter who studied Zen with D.T. Suzuki, 1870-1966, drew enzo and his artistic sensibility to present as art, just the world as it exists, is the essence of such one-stroke gestures. Whether drawn on paper or canvas, drawn by masters Nansen or Basso on the ground, or by Yangshan or Zafu, Zifu in the air, generally speaking, the circle is a representation of emptiness and fullness, of form and no form. Such art is often placed within the meditation space to aid the practitioner in their practice. For this reason, Zen masters often gave enzos to their students or patrons as gifts. Sometimes a word or phrase is added afterwards to an enzo image to suggest the teaching. Audrey Yoshika Seo, in her book Enzo Zen Circles of Enlightenment, 2007, translates some of these words and phrases. As examples, an enzo might be accompanied by single words such as dream, moo, heart, cloud, moon, wave, unborn, indestructible, oneness, or by short phrases such as, as it is, what is this, eat this rice cake, or no place to live. The great modern calligrapher Fukushima Kado, born in 1933, occasionally draws other shapes, including triangles, and has added this inscription, even this is a circle. <laughs> An enzo is also used in the sequence of drawings depicting the journey to enlightenment, known as the ox herding pictures. I will discuss the importance of these pictures to the history of Western abstraction and the notion of the spiritual in Western art. Shota Harada Roshi, 1940, has written, the original set of the ox herding pictures ended with the eighth drawing. It was a blank space, indicating that this heaven is so vast no message can stain it. The circle, or enzo, indicating no beginning of practice and no ending to enlightenment, was added as the eighth drawing when the eight ox herd herding pictures were augmented to include the ninth and tenth drawings. Apparently the augmentation took place when someone decided that forgetting the self and the ox, i.e. eliminating the duality between self and goal, placed the practitioner not in nirvana, but in the neighbourhood of Nirvana. The ninth step of reaching or returning to the source was added, as this was the tenth step of returning to the marketplace to indicate that the ideal of the Bodhisattva, teaching and helping others while refraining from entering into Nirvana until all others have done so as a result of such teaching, was the true final step, not Buddhahood. The ox herding pictures had a great influence on the eventual western step into reductionist and geometric abstraction, patterns seemingly forgotten by narrative art, but
but as archetypal as shells, stars and time. However, before I go there, I will briefly mention an almost concurrent step into the handmaid and the ready-made. The handmade, promoted by the arts and crafts movement as a reform of factory-made items and their mechanical design and decoration, emerged in Europe and North America between about 1880 and 1920. It was a response to the Industrial Revolution, which had transformed the agricultural and handcraft-based economies into economies based on large-scale industry and mechanised manufacturing. The new movement advocated traditional craftsmanship and a return to aesthetic intimacy with the everyday objects that were used. It in turn influenced the Art Nouveau movement of the 1890 to 1910 period and that movement's advocation of natural forms and their dynamism. One major objective of Art Nouveau was to break down the traditional distinction between fine arts and applied arts. Sounds very Japanese. These principles have some echo with the Tower of Painting, written about 500 CE and taken up by the Zen art tradition, that an art object or piece was to express the energy or key of the subject. Whilst the art and craft and art nouveau artists didn't take up the Buddhist art approach, that the artist never commences their work until they are completely one with their object, until object and subject become one, they were sensitive to an object's aesthetic and individual presence. A Zen student might say that there was some experience or acknowledgement of an object's inherent Buddha nature. To the artist, a Zen master, such as Dogen, would push further and say there is no division between world and self. We are Samadhi. We are that object. The art and craft artists and artisans were in this regard, along with their inclusivity of all things as art, somewhat catching up with the traditional Japanese and Zen approach that art translates into everyday life and includes calligraphy, prints, scrolls, painting, lacquer work, pottery, swords, tea ceremony utensils, embroidery, woodwork, furniture, flower arrangements and gardening. The 2007 exhibition and book Japan and the West, The Field Void, claimed that the foundation of this sensibility was the idea of the aesthetic void and the wisdom of the heart sutra, where form is emptiness and emptiness form brought to Japan in the 7th century and consolidated around 1300 by Zen monks in art practices. And shortly after the Art Nouveau period, the idea that any object could be art was introduced to the West. In 1917, Duchamp exhibited his fountain, which was a signed upturned urinal. It was termed a ready-made, and so it was realised that anything can be recontextualised as art. Similarly, leaping ahead a number of decades, the pop artists of the late 1950s and 1960s gave the same message when they took everyday objects as their subject matter. Though Duchamp's urinal caused a scandal then and has many times since, someone described it when it was first exhibited in New York as looking like a lovely Buddha. 
and perhaps Duchamp also thought of it as holding a Zazan-like presence. In shape and simplicity of line, it has a visual connection to one of Duchamp's 1911 figurative paintings titled Draft on a Japanese Apple Tree, where a Buddha-like figure in a loincloth sits beneath the blooming apple tree. In line, it also recalls Nantembo's quickly brushed Buddha figures sitting in Zazen. Eastern contemplation and a nod by Deschamps for Christian temptation? Who knows? But anecdotal associations between Deschamps and Buddhism exists. Around 1912, so one year after his draft on a Japanese apple tree, Deschamps went to stay in Munich with a friend who was curating an exhibition of Far East art at the Royal Ethnographic Museum and the two supposedly spent hours discussing Buddhist art and ideas. This discussion is regarded as signalling a growing interest by Duchamp in making works that challenge how we perceive form and emptiness. Thus Duchamp's bicycle, collaged found objects of a black front bicycle wheel mounted upright on a white stool, is seen by some as a collection of parts that references both the wheel of the Dharma and the impermanence and emptiness of the Buddha's metaphor of the disassembled chariot. But more generally, it signals an academic and artistic interest in the West of the East. A return or search for spiritual and knowing. Indeed, in the West, interest in theosophy and Eastern religions began really around the 1893 World Parliament of Religions and it had been gathering momentum since then. All of this was a likely response to the growing materiality of the modern era. As already alluded to, modernity's acorn was the Industrial Revolution. From the mid-18th century onwards, people's love with the productions of time literally gathered steam. During this period, particularly in Europe and the Western world, religion began to be replaced in the public sphere by secularisation, consumerism and the economic goal of self-sufficiency and social status. By the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the elevation of the individual had gained prominence through the flourishing of evolutionary biology and the psychological conception of human nature. As the philosopher Charles Taylor described in his landmark book, The Secular Age. For the first time in history, the humanism that promoted unbelief in either God or in transcendent reality became a widely available option. In the burgeoning scientific secular age, particularly after the First World War, those in art who considered themselves the most modern began to insist that form is the content and vice versa. In art criticism and promotion, the materialists held sway. The American critic Clement Greenberg, probably the single most influential art critic of the mid-20th century, introduced a wealth of ideas into discussion of the history and development of 20th century art, elaborating and refining notions such as kitsch, the mechanical or formulaic, the easel picture and pictorial flatness 
and inventing concepts such as that of the all-over paint surface and optical space. He considered artists to be playing with space, colour and shapes, and their central concern to be the flatness of the pictorial plane and the physical limitations of the canvas itself. Greenberg championed Cezanne, Picasso and Jackson Pollock, amongst others, as abstractionists who dealt in new ways with the challenge of applying paint and thus its effects through forms, lines, colours and textures on pictorial surfaces. In essays such as Abstract Art, 1944, Greenberg began to elaborate his understanding by discussing artists' changing treatment of form and space since the Gothic period. Later parts of abstract art concentrate on modern art since the Impressionists. And he argued that the drive towards abstraction must be understood as simply a facet of the era's reigning scientific spirit. Quote, In a period in which illusions of every kind are being destroyed, the illusionist methods of art must also be renounced. Unquote. Greenberg returned to these ideas in the essay Abstract and Representational, 1954, and in American Type Painting, 1955. It is in the latter that he argues modern art evolved while pursuing ever greater pictorial flatness. Indeed, for Greenberg, flatness alone is what is unique to painting, and art seeks its own self-definition and determines its own uniqueness. Nonetheless, Greenberg's central thesis that all art is contextual and must only be appreciated in material terms, never by resorting to spiritual ideas or principles, was something he had argued as early as 1940 in his Towards a Newer Lacoon. Here he argued that if the intent or ideas that drove the artist were of a spiritual nature, they should be ignored. Quote, It is quite easy to show that abstract art, like every other cultural phenomena, reflects the social and other circumstances of the age in which its creators live, and that there is nothing inside art itself disconnected from history which compels it to go in one direction or another. But it is not so easy to reject the purist assertion that the best contemporary plastic art is abstract. Here the purist does not have to support his position with metaphysical pretensions. And when he insists on doing so, those of us who admit the merits of abstract art without accepting its claims in full must offer our own explanation for its present supremacy. In this passage, Greenberg is alluding to three of the greatest abstract painters of the 20th century, Wozley Kandinsky, Piet Mondrian and Kazimir Malevich. Each of these men wrote a manifesto in which he explained the nature, production and the effect of abstract painting in emphatically spiritual terms. Greenberg says that the work these abstract artists produced is amongst the very greatest. However, he somewhat paradoxically insists that when it comes to these artists' own explanations of what they're up to when making their work, they are completely mistaken. Rather than resorting to spiritual principles, Greenberg insists that abstract art, indeed all art, must be explained exclusively in terms of the historical and material conditions on which it was produced and that it must only be appreciated and be explained in material, never spiritual terms. 
Each of the three modernists just mentioned made and responded to art as recognisably spiritual in nature. For example, Kandinsky described the experience of seeing an exhibition of Claude Monet's wheat stacks shining their presence in various weather conditions as a religious experience. His realisation that a painting is not necessarily about its subject, he later explored in his book Concerning the Spiritual in Art, 1912. For Kandinsky, the boundless space of abstraction, its colours, shapes and lines, are entryways to deep harmony. Similarly, Mondrian wrote quasi-philosophical papers based on his understandings of theosophy that had at their basis his notion of pure intuition. Ali Falahazadeh, in his PhD, argues that this notion of Mondrian's and his neoplastic artworks has a kinship with the pivotal Zen concept of Mushin, or no mind. In like manner, the minimalist monochromes of empty or open space in Malavec's early 1900s abstractions, such as his black square on white ground, 1913, and his black circle of 1920, were heavily indebted to Zen. For me, such artists in their works, like many past and contemporary abstract works, are a visual education in meditation. Their optical animations of brushstrokes, their tonal shifts and depths, or their accidents and patches of painterly play become presences and pulses of energies or calm pools. Their key is right there. I now return to the importance of the Enzo and form that is no form According to art historian Morris Tushman, a 16th century manual on the ox herd of pictures, as said earlier, a sequence showing the various stages to nirvana or enlightenment, as presented by the perfect circle and then nothing, was republished in 1910-12 and became well known to artists across Europe. Thereby, its illustrations and notions led to Malevich's and that period's interest in sacred geometry. Again, according to Tushman, in the 1950s, Jürgen Herigl's influential book, Zen in the Art of Archery, became a central influence to Jasper John's target series, where the optical illusion and the after effect of the target provokes the image of the target in the empty zone, which comes from Zen. From the mid-1990s, and without irony, John's was being described by American art critics as a Zen master of American art, and some of his comments quoted as feeling like Zen koans. For example, Johns is quoted by critic Edmund White as saying, time does not pass, words pass. White then aligns this with Dogen's, it is believed by most that time passes. In actual fact, it stays where it is. As an aside, Johns, when asked about his mid-80s series of paintings titled The Seasons, which featured circles, squares and triangles, said, quote, A 19th century Japanese Zen artist, Sengei Gibbon, used these same three shapes, though his style was so cursive one scarcely recognises them. The circle, square and triangle are the elements that make up the whole world, and they form the basis of Cezanne's art. Wheels within turning Dharma wheels. Influences within influences. So the modernism of Cezanne's geometry, 
the basis of all modern art and the flattening of the picture plane that Greenberg so loved, is, for at least one major artist, archetypal and spiritually resonant with Zen. In conclusion, as I see it, and however clumsily and quickly I've presented it, art and spirituality is not something apart from everyday life and the mystery at the heart of it all. The best artists, whatever their aesthetic style, know this. Art in Zen is an experience that occurs in the midst of and gives depth and integrity to our lives wherever or whatever we may be. The Tao Te Ching, the 4th century BCE, gives words to this dance. The Tao is an empty vessel. It is used but never filled by unfathomable sources of 10,000 things. Australian artist and Zen teacher Lindy Lee, artist of photocopies, flung bronze sculptures, flung paint and perforated surfaces, has said that being can only be experienced directly without the mediations of language, and so silence and stillness are cultivated through meditation. In a 2001 PhD thesis, The End is the Beginning, Lee presents that painting also has the potential to elicit silence and being, and thus its kinship to spirituality. She also says that finding meaning in authenticity comes only in the wake of doubt, and that In Zen Buddhism, the great doubt is an essential crisis about the nature of one's own existence that leads to finding the true nature of one's own existence. The beauty for her of making art is that it shows the central principle of Zen, which is that absolute reality is the void. That is, the individual and universal reality of all things is that nothing is fixed. Everything changes, and everything, therefore, is empty of permanent self. Being a practising artist and a student of Zen, I'll also add that to be a practising artist, similar to a practising Zen student, requires fidelity to a daily discipline. Painters must paint. Zen students must meditate. Over and over the painter brushes marks. Over and over the Zen student counts breaths. That is the wonder of it all. We delude ourselves if we think it is anything else. Whether it is good or not is beside the point and not of concern. Cultivate persistence and resilience. Enjoy your practice.